The title of this morning's message is Moses' Faith Chose the Reality of Christ. This morning we will be continuing in the Hall of Faith found in Hebrews 11. And today's hero of faith is Moses. And his story of faith is found in verses 23 through 29. I have it for you with the ESV. I'll read all seven verses at once and then we'll go back and work through them. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Here the author just hit some of the highlights of Moses' faith journey. And we can see that his faith in God was the foundation that prompted his decisions and his choices, including the decision to bear the reproach of Christ. Now, this usually sounds a bit odd to our ears, <laughs> because we know Jesus wasn't born until approximately 1,500 years after the death of Moses. So how is it that he could have had faith in Christ and make a life-altering decision to align himself with Christ and be willing to bear the reproach of Christ rather than choosing to rule and reign as Pharaoh in Egypt. Well, the truth is, our Old Testament stories don't always reveal to us everything that the Jewish people would have had insight into. As part of their indoctrination, they would have had many stories that were, had been passed down orally, as well as stories that were written down but were not included or recognized as scripture. So they had a lot in their background as far as indoctrination that we who, as New Covenant believers, don't know anything about because it's not in our Bible. <laughs> and even though those stories weren't considered scripture, it doesn't mean that what is contained in them is irrelevant. What's called the Apocrypha. There are lots of other, what we would call scriptures, that aren't included in our Bibles a Protestant Bible. So uh, these documents would have been widely known to the Hebrew baby believers. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples would have known most of what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They would have been aware of all of it. And it wasn't just the Bible that was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was all of this extra literature. And they would have understood that. One of the stories found in a document called The Visions of Amram of which several fragmented copies were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, they contain extra-biblical, that's what they call them, extra-biblical stories. But these extra-biblical stories can give us insight into the faith of Moses' parents and their understanding of the Christ, the Anointed One, the promised seed of Abraham, and the promised seed of the woman, who would one day utterly defeat the serpent. Amram was Moses' father. Amram had an interesting vision. 
which he says he wrote down as soon as he awoke. So it was a dream slash vision. <laughs> and in this dream slash vision, he tells of two spiritual figures who were fighting over the fate of his judgment at his death. Amram questions them about their claimed authority and challenges their rule in his life. And then, in apparent unison, the figures declare their rule over humanity and offer him a choice of destiny. One presents himself as Belial, the prince of darkness, and Melchirisha, the king of evil, who is empowered over all the darkness. The other figure was named Melchizedek, and he is the prince of light and the king of righteousness who rules over the light. This was in his vision, pre-scripture. <laughs> so Amram tells his readers that the sons of light will actually be made light, and that the sons of darkness will actually be made darkness. The sons of light are destined for light and joy, while the sons of darkness are destined for death and darkness. And then he declares that light will ultimately triumph over all darkness and that the son of darkness will be utterly destroyed. Again, this is amazing in light of the fact that it's pre-scripture. <laughs> God has a way of talking to his people. <laughs> so it sounds like Amram had a real understanding of what the Christ, the anointed one, would come to do, especially in view of the fact that Jesus is our forever high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So obviously, Amram had a pretty good understanding of God's plan regarding the Christ, the anointed one who was to come. These Jewish writings also include a story regarding Amram's daughter, who was Miriam, Moses' sister, who it is said that she prophesied to her mother while she was pregnant that she would give birth to the deliverer of Israel. And legend has it also that when Moses was born, the room was miraculously filled with a radiant light, confirming to Moses' parents that he was, in fact, the one who would deliver the Israelites from the darkness of Egypt. What I like about these two stories is that they explain why <laughs> Moses' parents could, by faith, hide their baby for three months, completely unafraid. Even though Pharaoh had demanded that all the male Hebrew male babies be thrown in the river and killed. Instead, they chose to believe what God had revealed to them. So by faith, they put him in a special basket and placed him into the Nile River. Not hoping. Knowing. That God would bring forth his will in their child's life. These stories help to explain why they had the faith to be able to do the things that they did. You don't put your baby in a basket unless you really believe. <laughs> it was because God had revealed himself and his will to this family. So faith arose in their hearts because God revealed himself and his truth to them. And the truth is, God never asks anyone to believe in him and trust him apart from him revealing himself to that person. Christ has always been the author and the finisher of our faith. These stories help us to better understand verse 23 of chapter 11. 
by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And the King James uses the word proper. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's what faith does. It gets rid of the fear. So that we operate trusting God instead of being afraid of Satan. Now, to us, this sounds like they just thought Moses was extra adorable (laughs) because he was such a cute little baby. (laughs) But in actuality, it speaks of the fact that he is a child that represented God's promise. In other words, he represented the fulfillment of their prophesied deliverance. And that is what made him so beautiful. When they looked at their child, they saw and held in their arms Israel's promised freedom. And that was truly beautiful. For those who are in slavery, freedom is the sweetest gift. Also, the Israelites knew it was about time for the promised deliverer to be born. Because Abraham had prophesied that Israel would be in bondage for 400 years but that God would surely bring them out of that bondage, bless them with riches, and bring them back into the promised land. So the faithful in Israel were still looking for the fulfillment of both God's promised deliverance for Israel and his promised judgment on Egypt. And this is very much like what the Hebrew baby believers needed to do. They needed to let God, in and through Jesus, reveal himself to them, over and over and over again, especially through the Word of God. From the Old Testament and the New, they had all of those promises. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, not in national Israel. In Christ. They needed this so that their faith would enable them to do the things God's calling them to do. God was calling them to do and prepare for both a deliverance and a judgment. Same kind of scenario. But they needed to be able to act and have faith rise in their hearts and strengthen them to be able to act on their faith instead of being driven by fear. They also knew that there was a promised judgment that would come upon unbelieving Israel. It was a promise from Deuteronomy 28. (laughs) When you leave God, this is what you get. And also the promised deliverance that would be provided for believers in Jesus. So they needed to be able to fearlessly act on their faith so that they could enter into the promised deliverance. God didn't want them being driven by fear and hounded by fear. He wanted them to know that they know, I'm in a hard place, but I'm not staying here forever. He's taking me out, and he's taking me out safely. They needed to follow the pattern set by Moses' parents, both for themselves and for their kids. They needed to have God reveal the truth to them again and again and again. Fear flees. God, speak to me about this. (laughs) I know what you told me last week, but I'm a little wobbly today. (laughs) Need you to strengthen me in my faith. (laughs) Next, the author jumps from Moses' infancy to his adulthood. 
where Moses demonstrates his understanding of the calling that God had placed on his life. And we can see this in verses 24 through 26 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The author skips over <laughs> the story of Moses being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter because he knows that his audience is already fully aware of the circumstances that brought Moses into Pharaoh's house. Again, even though the Old Testament scriptures don't explain why Pharaoh's daughter would want to adopt a Hebrew baby, <laughs> the Jewish writings and other historical writers, such as Josephus, do provide us with an answer. Moses' adoptive mother was the only living heir of her father, the Pharaoh. And because the pharaohs had a bad habit of marrying their siblings <laughs> and other close relatives <laughs> as a means of ensuring the continuation of their rule and reign, the children produced by these marriages were often deformed, both mentally and physically, and they usually died early in life, which is exactly what happened to her two older brothers. So they had died early in life. Normally, only sons would ascend to the throne. But if you only have a daughter, and she has either a husband or a son, then she can ascend to the throne. So in order for her to be able to rule and reign as Pharaoh when her father died, she needed either a husband or a son to legitimize her rulership. And at the time of Moses' adoption, she had neither. <laughs> so one day, when Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the Nile River, probably as an act of ritual cleansing and worship, a remedy to this obstacle of her ruling and raiding suddenly appears. Ta-da! A son! Just what I needed! <laughs> this wasn't just any son. This son came from the Nile River, which they believed was ruled by a god called Hopi. <laughs> and Hopi was believed to be the most high god of all of the gods of Egypt, which is probably the only reason her father would have allowed her to keep this baby. How could he possibly say no to their most high god? <laughs> he couldn't. <laughs> so Moses was groomed and educated and thoroughly prepared to become the next pharaoh after his adoptive mother. Scholars believe her name was Hatshepsut, and she actually became the second female pharaoh of Egypt, and she reigned for 22 years. Scholars say that she had one of the most successful, one of the most peaceful, and one of the most productive reigns in the history of the pharaohs. And some scholars say that about the time that Moses made up his mind not to continue to be her heir to the throne, she converted to faith in Yahweh as the true Most High God. But up to this point in Moses' life, we don't see in Scripture any really big God moments for Moses. But Moses, nevertheless, 
knew the calling on his life. Most likely from being around his biological family when he was still very young and hearing their stories and their prophecies. But also because God is simply very good at leading us into all truth, which enables us to believe what God has revealed. And God had revealed to Moses and his family that he was indeed chosen to be the deliverer of Israel. And we can see that Moses had the same understanding in Acts chapter 7, verses 22 through 29. This is actually a part of Stephen's response to the high priest after he was arrested for preaching Jesus. Verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. <laughs> so Moses obviously knew that he was called to deliver Israel from the oppression of Egypt. But it doesn't look like he knew exactly how he was going to deliver Israel. It would not be by the strength of Moses' hand. It would be by the strength of God's hand. And God's hand in the life of a believer is always a demonstration of his grace. And his grace is always appropriated by faith in his revealed word to us and his revealed will for us. So Moses demonstrated his faith by both refusing the future throne of Pharaoh, which would not have been easy. According to those who calculate how much a kingdom back then would be worth today, the kingdom of Pharaoh would have won about $3.5 trillion in today's money. And he said, no thanks. <laughs> that would be hard. <laughs> because if he's Pharaoh, couldn't he deliver the people? Yeah, I can have all this money, all this power, and get the job done. Right, God? <laughs> Not by your hand, Moses. By my hand, Moses. <laughs> so he refused all the wealth and power. And instead, he chose to identify himself with the people of God who were suffering under the hand of Pharaoh. Moses had to choose between the power and the ways of Egypt and the power, calling, and promises of God. And he chose God. But his natural brothers did not understand the calling on his life. And we can see this in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 7. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? <laughs> this is actually kind of funny because it's prophetic. <laughs> because technically God had already appointed Moses to the position of ruler and judge over Israel. It just wasn't manifested yet. <laughs> but by identifying himself with Israel, he automatically accepts the reproach or scorn that accompanies both Christ and the true people of God. And we can see this in verse 26 of Hebrews 11. He considered the reproach of Christ, the scorn of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
That's quite a statement when you understand what the treasures of Egypt were and how vast those riches were. To say, no, Christ is so much more than everything this world can give you. You don't need to depend on your own strength. You need to depend on God's. So he was looking forward to the reward. Moses was a type and shadow of Christ. He left a throne to become a servant. Sounds like Jesus. A servant of God the Father and a servant of Christ, as promised and the promised seed of Abraham. Moses could make this choice because he was looking to the reward. He wasn't looking for a reward, but to the reward, which was both Christ and his kingdom. Just as Moses' father, Amram, understood that he could choose his own eternal destiny by aligning himself with either Belial, the prince of darkness, or with Melchizedek, the son of light, so could Moses. And he chose to place his faith in Yahweh God, and in his Son of Light. Continuing with Moses' story uh, in Acts 7, verses 28 and 29. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Moses obviously made a pretty big mistake. <laughs> when he chose to kill an Egyptian. Because when Pharaoh found out about it, he tried to have Moses killed. The Egyptians were actually very racist, <laughs> and they believed themselves to be a superior kind of humanity, especially in compared to Hebrews. So if Moses had killed a Hebrew, it probably would not have been a big deal to Pharaoh, because they didn't consider them equal with the Egyptians. But a Hebrew killing an Egyptian would have been considered a personal attack on Pharaoh himself. And there was no way Pharaoh was going to tolerate that from within his own household. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Pharaoh's magicians had prophesied to Pharaoh when his daughter adopted Moses that a Hebrew reared in Pharaoh's house would one day rise up and bring low the dominion of Egypt. And the Hebrew would actually excel above all other men, including Pharaoh, and be remembered throughout all ages. The Egyptians were really big on the idea of their rule and reign on earth being extended and being remembered. One of the things that uh, Pharaohs that followed Moses' mother is they tried to erase her. They pulled down her statues. They tried to change the name on her coffin. And all. They wanted to get rid of her and the memory of her because she was a girl. <laughs> Let's just face it. <laughs> Even though she had the most successful rule and reign in Egypt, we don't want people to remember that. <laughs> we want them to remember King so-and-so and King so-and-so and King so-and-so. And so this was a big deal that the Pharaoh would be remembered throughout all ages. And here, his own magicians are telling him, that's not going to happen for you. It's going to happen for Moses. He didn't like that. 
So, of course, Pharaoh saw this murder as a perfect reason to get rid of Moses, which would be his competition. Once and for all, be done with him. But God. God led him to flee the wrath of Pharaoh, which lands him safely in Midian for the next 40 years. We can see this in verse 27 of Hebrews 11. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses left by faith in the one who had called him, even though in the original account in Exodus, it says that he left Egypt because he feared Pharaoh's wrath. But we know as believers that we can believe and unbelieve all at the same time. <laughs> that was Moses. <laughs> I'm afraid, but I'm going to trust God. But I'm afraid, but I'm going to trust God. <laughs> so it's Hebrews that tells us, no, he did what he did by faith. Even though under the old covenant, it looks like he left because of fear. So Moses only could experience fear while he looked at his circumstances. He couldn't experience fear while looking at his Savior. Because his Savior, Christ, is greater than all the wealth and riches of Egypt. So if he chose to look at his circumstances, which, what? That's in the darkness. The world is under the power of darkness. We look at our circumstances, we're looking at darkness. It's only when we turn to Christ that we're looking at light and truth. And that brings faith. That's what he's talking about, that at the same time, he could set his eyes on him who is invisible. How do you see something you cannot see? By knowing the truth, that it exists, and it's more real than anything that's in the darkness. God would convince Moses' heart to believe his promises and convince his heart to be sure of what God had already revealed to him. He must have felt like a failure right about then. <laughs> oh, well, gee, I'm not going to be Pharaoh now, and how am I going to get these people free? Must be somebody else, Jesus. Must be somebody else. <laughs> but he was to be Israel's great deliverer, eventually. Sometimes when God shows us something, we think it should be, poof, right here, right now. <laughs> and the truth is, it is right here, right now. And then as we walk in faith, it manifests. That's what was going on with him. So it was only wise for Moses to avoid giving Pharaoh the opportunity to dispose of him. Because he had to remember, no, I am going to set these people free. So it was also reasonable for Moses to believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of all of the promises that they had received, that those were more true and more real so that the invisible, what he could not see with his physical eyes, he could see with the eyes of faith. Because God had made those promises, and they knew that God would not and could not lie. The same was true for the Hebrew baby believers who, who were reading this letter to the Hebrews. They needed to remember that Moses' brothers did not understand what God had planned for both Moses and his people. Their unbelieving friends and relatives did not understand God's plan of redemption through Jesus. 
which is why their friends and relatives were persecuting them and even trying to kill them, just like Pharaoh was trying to kill Moses. And like Moses, it was in their best interest to run from their persecutors. <laughs> they were supposed to run to the mountains. <laughs> Don't stay in Jerusalem. When you see the armies, run. Now see, that doesn't sound like wisdom to us Christians. <laughs> we say, no, we stand and fight. <laughs> Not when God says run. <laughs> God knows what's best. He knows how to get us from here to where we're going. When he says you run, you run. <laughs> so they needed to run. They needed to cooperate with God for their promised deliverance. Their deliverance was not going to come by the hand of a man. It was going to come by the hand of God. And they had to act on what God was saying to them and walk into their promised deliverance. These Hebrew baby believers needed to follow in Moses' footsteps of faith and embrace Christ alone as their ruler and judge instead of Moses. They needed to remember that what they had in and through Christ was far more valuable than the approval of their friends and relatives, and even more valuable than their own physical lives. The Son of Light had given them eternal life and eternal riches in heaven. And they needed to remember that the invisible God became visible in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. They needed to remember that Moses endured his difficult circumstances by keeping his eyes of faith on the invisible God who reveals the reality of Christ as the fulfillment of all of his promises. And we can see these truths in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 22. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. Not a smidge. <laughs> Need a little smidge of power here, Jesus. No. All power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
And where does he dwell? In us. So we have, we possess right now <laughs> the fullness of God. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And reproach can also be understood as unaccused. That regardless of what we have or have not done, we stand before God holy, blameless, and unaccused. There is an accuser, but it's not Jesus Christ. You're feeling condemned? Not from Jesus. <laughs> feeling like you're a failure? Not from Jesus. <laughs> holy, blameless, and above reproach. The Hebrew baby believers needed to ignore the reproach or scorn of unbelieving men. Because as believers, they stood before God as holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ Jesus. We are, and they were, unaccusable before our Father because our sin debt has been paid in full once and for all. And we have been qualified. We're qualified. <laughs> qualified to be strengthened with all power <laughs> according to his glorious might so that we too can have all endurance with joy. It's one thing to have all endurance and patience, but to do it with joy, <laughs> that takes Jesus. <laughs> the only thing that could hinder these Hebrew baby believers from receiving all power according to his glorious might would be for them to continuously look at their difficult circumstances, the realm of darkness, instead of constantly looking to their victorious Savior and his precious promises. Next, the author jumps again. This time he jumps over the burning bush incident. He jumps over the call to return to Egypt. He jumps over Moses' interaction with Pharaoh, and he jumps over nine of the ten plagues. The author chooses keeping the Passover as an example of Moses' extraordinary faith in God and in Christ. And that's verse 28, Hebrews 11. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The Passover is a type and shadow of the cross of Christ, which brings deliverance from all the power of sin and death. But the effectiveness of the blood of the Lamb was only seen and felt by those whose faith prompted them to apply the blood of the Lamb to their own houses, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. In applying the blood of their Lamb to their houses, they unknowingly made a bloody cross. They applied the blood if we had put a bucket, if you will, of blood at the base of the doorway, they would dip hyssop into the blood and straight up put the blood up there on top, from side to side. They made a cross. 
This, of course, prefigures the bloody cross of our Passover lamb. His blood has destroyed the power of the prince of darkness so that he cannot touch us. He can throw darts at our head, (laughs) but he cannot touch who we are because we live in the kingdom of light and light always triumphs over darkness. And we can see this in 1 John 5, verses 18 and 20. We know that everyone who is fathered by God does not sin. It doesn't say they never make mistakes. <laughs> it doesn't say they never make bad choices. It says they never sin. In fact, it says they cannot sin. And that's because sin is never imputed to a believer. You can do stupid stuff, but it's never counted against you. Jesus does not allow our sins to be imputed to us. Therefore, we cannot commit what would be called sin because it never touches us. But the one fathered by God, Jesus, protects him. Jesus protects us from the power of the enemy. And the evil one does not, does not touch him. We know that we are from God. We are born of him. And the whole world, again, lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know the the one who is true. And we are in the one who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This one is the true God and eternal life. Also, we and the Hebrew baby believers are all counted as firstborns. The plague for Egypt was with the firstborn of every human and the firstborn of every animal belonged to God. So the plague was going to come upon the firstborns unless the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost of their house. Because in Christ, he's the firstborn from the dead. And we have been made heirs of God and equal heir, equal heirs, co-heirs with Christ. All that belongs to our Father and our Jesus is now ours also because it was the Father's good pleasure to give us his kingdom. And just as the death angel could not touch those whose houses were marked with a bloody cross made from the Lamb's blood, neither can the Prince of Darkness touch us, because Jesus, our Passover Lamb, is our shield and our very great reward. The Hebrew baby believers struggled to get their eyes off of Moses. They were so thoroughly indoctrinated in Moses and the law. In fact, you didn't even have to say law. You said Moses, they automatically knew you're talking law. But see, this whole passage is trying to change their mind, to get your mind off of what Moses did and see that Moses was a man who walked and lived by faith. The most important thing about Moses was not the giving of the law. The most important thing about Moses was that he had faith in God the Father and in Melchizedek, the son who would come. This author wants them to understand, no, you can look at Moses, but don't look at him as the law, as a demand. Open your eyes so that you can see that he was a man of faith. If they wanted to have their eyes on Moses, They would have to get their eyes off of the demands of the law. They could look there, but they had to understand that Moses is less than Jesus, not higher. That was hard for the Hebrew baby believers. 
Moses was the next best thing to God. <laughs> right up there, you know. They had not yet understood that who Jesus was in his reality, that he was in fact God. The author's trying to get them to get their eyes off of works and on to grace. The grace that comes through Jesus Christ. So instead of trying to get the Hebrew baby believers to stop looking at Moses, which would be what religion would say, stop looking there. Don't do it. Oh, well, that's not going to empower you to do anything. <laughs> so the author is actually very smart. He says, no, 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 it's okay to look to Moses if you're going to look to see how he believed God, how he embraced by faith the promises of God. Go ahead, look at Moses, but only so you can see how he received the reality of Christ by faith and willingly received the reproach of Christ. Go ahead, look at Moses. Look at Moses' parents. But only so you can see how God revealed the reality of our Melchizedek to Moses' father. Go ahead, look at Moses. But only so you can see how God revealed Moses' call to be the deliverer of Israel to his big sister, even before he was born. Go ahead, look to Moses. But only so you can see the realities of Christ found within the Passover. Go ahead, look to Moses, but realize it was the blood of the Passover lamb that protected the firstborns from the angel of death. Not Moses. Go ahead, look to Moses. But only so you can understand that Moses walked with God and lived by faith in the God who revealed himself and his truths to Moses and to Moses' heart. Moses lived in a relationship with God by faith not by laws. It was all about trusting God, the one who is invisible. And the same is true for the church. It's okay for us to look to Moses as a man who walked by faith and who pleased God with that faith. But it's not okay to look to Moses as being equal with Christ. It's not okay to add Moses to the blood of our Passover lamb. Moses did not save anyone. The law did not save anyone. It was always and forever the blood of a lamb that saved them. It was God who did the saving. And he did it through faith in the blood of their lambs. It was faith in the word of God that enabled the Israelites to go free. Not Moses. So if Moses didn't do the saving under the old covenant, then why would we look to him under the new covenant? <laughs> we wouldn't if we truly understood how complete and how finished the work of salvation is. Faith in Jesus, our Passover lamb, is all we need to put our hearts at rest. So much of the church wants to add the doing to the faith. Do this and believe. Do this and believe. For Moses, it was, I hear God, I believe God, and I do what God says. That's it. <laughs> there was no trying to please God by keeping rules. That came later. And the scripture tells us why. If you don't know what sin is, you'll keep doing it. And sin always bears ugly fruit. God didn't want them bearing ugly fruit. 
They couldn't live in the kingdom yet like we could. But they could live under this umbrella of grace. Where if they kept inside the lines of the covenant, they enjoyed God's grace by faith. Same as us. Grace through faith. Everything. Under the new covenant, all the promises are already yes. We're not trying to convince our Father to give us stuff. He's already said, you need that? Yes. You want that? Yes. How about you? Yes. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. All the promises are yes. So we're not trying to convince God to do something. We're trying to let the Holy Spirit convince our heart that he has already done everything. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the bloody cross that paid our debt of sin and death. We thank you, Father God, that you have made us firstborns. You have picked us up out of the kingdom of darkness, and you have placed us at your own right hand in Christ Jesus. We live right now in the kingdom of light. We're not going to someday live there. We live there now. Our spirit is one spirit with the living God. We live there now. You said, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't work for kingdom. You receive kingdom by faith through grace. We thank you, Father God, that you are so good at leading us into all the truth the truth of your word, the truth of your salvation, the truth of who you really are, the truth about how good you really are, and the truth that you have already given us everything. You have given us all power to do whatever you call us to do in every area of our life. You give us the ability to endure difficulty, knowing that difficulty is not going to be forever. We thank you, Father God, that you enable us to walk in the victory from the inside out instead of from the outside in. We thank you, Father God, for the finished work of our salvation. And we thank you, Father God, that you allow us to cooperate with you in faith. And even that is a work of your hand. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE G-I-V-E to 833-632-1315 or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.